1: straight out of Austin, Texas, it's On Second Thought, powered by Hook'em.com, with your hosts, statesman sports columnists, Cedric Golden and Kirk Bowles. Often imitated, never duplicated. Hear it here first, On Second Thought. On Second Thought, episode 198, brought to you by Hook'em.com, our good friends at Bud Light, My name's Cedric Golden, and I'm joined, as usual, by my guy, the Duck, Kirk Bowles. And Duck, we keep it rolling with great authors, great journalists, uh, great people. Bruce Feldman, a reporter with Fox Sports. You can see him every Saturday on Fox with Rob Stone, Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart, and Coach Urban Meyer, along with Brady Quinn. In your on your television screen. He also writes for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at bruce Feldman cfb, And he is the author of the smash new book, Flip the Script, Lessons on the Road to a Championship. Uh, bruce, uh, how are you doing today? And the first question I got to ask is, how long did it take to transcribe Ed Orgeron? Uh, it was a,
2: it was an interesting process. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy because he is a guy who, you know, I is, I covered him when I did this book meat market, like 13 years ago. And people had always asked me that was basically be a fly on the wall of how an SEC program and a division one program tries to recruit. And he, he became the central figure in it. And he's just a very colorful character. Uh, people had always asked me, are you ever going to do a sequel or another version of meat market? And I didn't think I ever would. And then as they started as LSU got, I always raved to me about Joe Brady. It was this hire that nobody had heard, knew anything about last, I guess it's 18 months ago. I was going to say last spring, but it's two springs yeah. ago now. And um, I went down there and was blown away by, what they were doing offensively. It was the first time LSU's offense was, you know, kicking the defense's butts. And I was like, wow, these guys are going to be really good. And I started working on a, on a uh, book proposal for what essentially is this book. And was this was what I saw as this is the sequel to meat market. And the thing with him is you can get Ogeron on the phone for, you know, everything is like three, five minutes, you know, and then it's got to go moving on to the next thing or whatever. And so, when we agreed to do this book, um, the, once the pandemic hit, that was when the, the writing was going to and the reporting and was going to have to take place. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. Well, in reality, because there was his spring football got canceled basically a weekend and from, from the quarantine and everything else, he actually had time to you know, more time than I think I would have ever gotten him in any other way. I mean, we'd be on the phone for an hour or 45 minutes, different times. And you're right. I mean, after you talk to him so much, um, you basically like, you get it. You understand like things that other people go, what did he just say? I'm like, Oh, I know what he said. You know, it's just like,
1: <laughs> you
2: just kind of like, it's becomes a language you, you get, and that's just, you understand his verbiage. You understand, the way he's, the way he talks, you, I mean, it just kind of, I don't want to say it like sounds quote unquote normal, but the translation isn't as hard that way, you know, because of just now all of a sudden you've heard it so much.
3: Well, obviously you need to learn how to speak at Orgeron. And sounds like you mastered that through Rosetta Stone and <laughs> yeah. in, in immersion. A couple of questions about the book is that, did Ed and his staff see this coming? And did they – obviously, he kind of revolutionized LSU football because it's been such a, a run-heavy defense-first program forever, and it just kind of joined the revolution that kind of Mike Leach and others have started. Did they see it coming, Bruce? He did. Uh, and that was the part of the conversations we had
2: about, I got this guy I hired, I think he's a genius, and everything else – and then yeah, he would talk he, the way he talked about Joe Burrow, remember Joe Burrow going into 2019, he was a good quarterback, but he wasn't like his first year there were flashes, but nobody saw him coming as Heisman winner or even, you know, top hundred pick much less was yeah. picking the draft. But Ed was like, I mean, we have some stuff in the book about when he, buying into Joe Burrow and his recruiting visit and all the stuff they see. And he's like, I got, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe like eight different football coaches were in the meeting when, when they get Burrow on an unofficial, on an on a, a official visit. Um, and they're w- having him go through, go through his Ohio state film and they're also looking at other film. And mm. Ogeron says it didn't take long to realize It was the smartest one in the room. Mm. And, you know, you got a bunch of guys who coached in the NFL coached for decades in college football. And here's a guy who really hadn't played hardly at all at Ohio State. Now, he is a son of a coach. And his dad, Jimmy, was a defense coordinator at Ohio U and played at Nebraska. But still, um, he was all the way in on what he thought Joe was going to be. And pretty much everything he thought proved to happen last year in 2019. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. And so I think what's what readers are really – find fascinating for flip the script is just you had this guy as the head coach who is except you know like all of us flawed but spectacularly so in a lot of ways his first head coaching job at Ole Miss fails spectacularly like there were some some positives in there but a lot of it you know he's fired after three years and I think what you have to you know keep in mind here is this is a guy who has had to deal with addiction and alcoholism. And so he's been 20 years sober, but because of that process and those battles, I think it has forced him to look inward in ways that, you know, you guys know football coaches they are typically as stubborn people as you ever come across. Mm -hmm. And it has forced him to make really hard evaluations about himself first and foremost, when a lot of times coaches, they don't evolve when they get to be a certain age. I mean, he's, he's right. gr- evolved a lot once he's gotten his fifties. So he learned from all his mistakes. And then he learned from his buddy Lane Kiffin's mistakes when he was his right-hand man at Tennessee and then at, at USC. And so, and I think to some degree he learned from being on less miles staff and being around less. And I think he learned from Les's mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I think all that stuff together, I think he believed, they were going to win a championship. It just – was it going to be 2019 or not? And then once it got momentum and he got everybody to buy into his vision. I mean, yeah. you guys saw it early on. I guess it was week two in Austin. And they just kept on – you know, it just – it was like an avalanche. It just kept on building from there.
3: What, what do you have from that would. game? What, yeah, I'm sorry, Ted. What, what memories of that game are in the book that maybe we- – Longhorn fans would be interested in. Bruce. Yeah,
2: I mean, so you have that, obviously, that crazy, you know, third and long call where oh, you yeah. said, you know, he's on the headset and he's like, before, when Texas has got momentum and, you know, Sam is rolling and you're like, okay, this is a road game and we've seen this from LSU and it's like, hey, four-minute offense and Steve Ensminger, who is the offensive coordinator and really the guy, you know, Joe, who was Joe Brady was in his ear, but still it was Ensminger's offense said, Hey, no, we're going to go down and score. And they stayed aggressive. And I think one of the keys to this and I was like, let's do it. One of the things I think was in the core of this. So you get like the back and forth on the coaching staff of how this is going. And remember, as you guys well know, there was a lot of people who thought Tom Herman was going to be the head coach at one point at LSU. So there is (laughs) exactly right. And so I think you know, I don't think there's an, a rivalry between Ed O's and Tom Herman at all, but I do think there is a big part of it. L- like, Hey, a lot of people thought he was going to get the job that I feel like I deserved. And so yeah, right. I think he, he tried to, you know, wanted to stay above the fray with that. So I don't think you get any, you know, Tom Herman, you know, mm-hmm. come up and stuff. But I, I do think that one probably was very sweet for him just knowing the history of, of what, and that's not Tom's doing. That's just basically how that, that played
1: out as crazy as that coaching search was. Uh, big personalities on that team, um, Cleveland chase and, and Joe Burrow and Grant Delpit. Um, who, who which personality besides coach Joe, uh, stood out the most to you and, uh, writing this book? Said we got some amazing stuff about Joe Burrow,
2: like when even before he was named the starter of basically challenging at practice, Devin White. Devin White's one of the best football players in the world. Right. And he was the best defensive, the best linebacker in the country that year. And Devin White is just chirping at practice. And Joe Burrow basically yells at him, hey, Devin, if you don't shut the bleep up, I'm going to come over there and beat the bleep out of you. (laughs) <laughs> and it to, Whoa, What is this? And then you had going into last season, uh, burrow basically getting into a fight with Patrick queen who ended up being a first round pick. But at the time, Patrick was just a, he's just another linebacker and these are starting like full scale brawls. And this is really the first time I think you see, um, you know, the offense having a presence at LSU in a long time. Right. And so, Joe Burrow was was that, you know, he was basically like a player coach. Ed leaned on him for all sorts of stuff. Every time it would be like, hey, I'm thinking about we're going to do this. What do you think the team, you know, wants? And he trusted, like, it's rare when you have a connection like that. And I mean, a lot of schools have, like, leadership councils, but Joe Burrow was, like, a next-level guy for that. But as you said, Chase on, you know, and again, UT fans will remember him because he's, you know, from Texas and was a big, big recruiting battle. But I think he was a guy who was somebody that, you know, Ed, Ed knew was, is very intelligent, is very thoughtful. And I think there was a guy who has big leadership capabilities. Um, He saw it in what you would get from Derek Stingley Jr. At the time of true freshman, and certainly Jamar Chase, who Jamar Chase is like this ultimate alpha competitor, and what that did for practice. There's a guy now in the NFL um, named uh, uh, Richard Lawrence, who was a really, really um, mature kid. I mean, if you look at Richard Lawrence, he looks like he's 38 years old. Yeah. I mean, he's a beard since he's in eighth grade, and he is very mature. But I, I think, you know, Ed, Ed knew this is a guy back when things were, and this kind of, you know, right now, obviously they're having, they're in rebuild, rebuild mode. They lost almost their entire starting 22 to the NFL and mm-hmm. they're two and two. And it's like, Hey, this feels very familiar because in 2017 Ogeron's first full season, they get blown out by Mississippi state on the road. They lose to Troy and it's just, you know, it seems like it's, it's chaotic and what are we going to do? And every, and there's a lot of, people were panicked and they found leadership. And one of the guys he found leadership was, was in Rashard Lawrence, who at the time was a sophomore. And, you know, I think they have these honest discussions that people will see in the book about what goes on behind the scenes when things aren't going so well. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, not to say that there's comparisons because every, every program is different, but I think for, you know, looking at, at Texas, you know, I've covered UT and everything. And you wonder, it's like, when it's when you when it's a lot of two steps forward and two steps back mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers to what's going on and what the battle is inside the locker room and so you know to me that was one of the more fascinating things i learned from this book was just you think oh this head coach has the respect of his players and it's the same every year well the reality is the locker room is, is wildly different from one year to the next and the chemistry on a team. And what you, can, what you can say to certain guys, you cannot message things the same way every year. And at one point in this 2017 year, which was pretty volatile, he said, you know, I had a player come back, Duke Riley, who had been a, a team captain and was in the NFL. And I said, Duke, do you want to speak to the team? And he said, let me, l- let me think about that for a bit. And he hung around the team for a day and a half and mm-hmm. saw that you know the guys some of the freshmen weren't putting their trays away in the cafeteria somebody left trash out they were loafing and he just lit into the team mm-hmm. and ed said that was one of the might be the best speech he's ever had anybody delivered to his team and he said i could not have talked to that team the way duke did at that moment because if i did I probably would have lost them and just mm-hmm. having the awareness of that and how delicate the balance is I think is really fascinating to hear especially just as a you know somebody who covers college football like you guys do I think sometimes you know we don't really know exactly you know we may know aspects of it and anecdotally but I just think to hear somebody admit that and talk about that and how fragile that is is pretty eye opening
3: It's kind of, you're right, Bruce. It's kind of like player ownership. It's like, okay, you know, players can speak to other players differently than coaches. I I totally agree with that. And, uh, that's the best teams that are one that are internally driven. You don't need the outside motivation from coaches and, and whatnot. Uh, it was, just, it was just one of the greatest college football seasons ever and one of the greatest teams, I think. I mentioned Joe Brady. He was just there the one year, and then he goes with Matt Rule to the NFL and the Carolina Panthers. Any little insight into uh, Joe Brady? And is this guy going to be a great NFL coach or uh, college head coach uh, in short order, Bruce? Kirk, I, I think he's going to be on the NFL
2: side more long, long-term, but – a couple of things to me stand out. And obviously you guys covered Cliff Kingsbury and everything, but I think just in terms of Joe Brady's coaching stock, I definitely think it bodes well for him that Cliff in year two has it rolling at with the Cardinals. And certainly Sean McVay has been a great hire for the Rams. And not to say that the the, compar- the, the comparison to, the two, I, to those two guys is obviously they're young guys on the up and coming and they're considered you know, brilliant offensive minds. Now, one thing that I think might surprise some people, because if you see Joe, Joe Brady around, you see close cropped red hair anywhere, you know, the glasses, and maybe he mm-hmm. looks a little nerdish to people. And, you know, he, when I went down there that first time in April of 2019, I s- spent a bunch of time in the meetings. And then I said, do you mind if we do an interview? And I went into his office and halfway through, uh, he's, you know, we, we were talking about this and he basically said, this is the first interview he would ever done. And it wasn't wow. just like the first interview he'd ever done at LSU. It was wow. basically the first real interview he'd ever, ever done. Because if you think about it, you know, Cliff Kingsbury, for example, was obviously a great co- college quarterback and I, and he was certainly a great high school quarterback. Yeah. Almost every guy who's a coach, same for, say for probably like Mike Leach and Charlie Weiss were probably it, if they weren't really good college players, there were at least really good high school players. Mm -hmm, Sure, Joe Brady was like a, you know, like a backup receiver at a, you know, a high school in, in Miami Dade County where, you know, there's tons of good football players. So why are they interviewing? Why would they interview Joe Brady? Then he goes to William and Mary and he was a reserve receiver. And then he's a grad assistant on James Franklin's staff. So nobody's interviewing grad assistants. Then he goes to the saints. He's, he's really just a staffer. He's not a position coach. So, saying all that to this is yeah. when you like one thing that he's his personality is really kind of unknown largely other mm-hmm. than his name and his statistics but sitting in I got to sit in a lot of the meetings at the like late in the year because I'm there with them for the SEC title game and then the, the Oklahoma game and then obviously the Clemson game um, I would sit in like the, the coaches would sit in like the back three rows of these like hotel rooms where you'd have, it'd be a you know, long double room where all the players are in the first, whatever, first probably 25 rows mm-hmm. and the coaches would be in the last three rows. And so, I mean, the coaching staff is big. It's not just position coaches. I mean, these are bloated staffs, as you know, and there's a lot of analysts and everything but I remember the first time I was like, where is Brady in this? And then I looked up and in the front in like the second row, the receivers would sit. And so you'd see Justin Jefferson and, and uh, Jamar chase and Justin Jefferson would have his arm around. And I thought, oh, oh, there's the little red head. And he'd see Joe Brady <laughs> would be in between them. Same thing at, the, <laughs> at the, uh, the team dinners. You would have like maybe there'd be four round tables in the right corner where the coaches would sit and the rest of it would be all players yeah. and everything. And Brady, in all the times I was around them, I don't think he ever sat with the coaches at dinner mm-hmm. enough, And he would sit with the receivers. And um, they, the connection he had with those guys, I think, really stood out to me. I was like, okay, I yeah. can see how he connects with these guys that I think that is going to translate well. Because if he was just like the X and O's whiz or uh-huh. if he was like this kind of Charlie Weiss-ish figure – Um, that's not going to work these days. It's just going to implode. You got to have more than that.
1: And I definitely think he has more than that. I just think that's really cool that uh, an, uh, an ex backup receiver from William and Mary probably never lost that identity. And he probably connected with these guys on a receiver level. And I guess the question I have on that is chemistry seems to be so much more important in a football locker room than any other sport. And they just it just they just seem to have a lot of chemistry. Um, was was it was it more of a confluence of things just falling into place? Or was there ever a time when Coach O went, I wonder if I can get all this talent meshed? You know, I think he said more than anything it was
2: he trusted and he got the trust of the staff and the players and it, it didn't happen right away, but it got to the point where, and I didn't realize how, how like unique this was until, and I'll tell you where it came from. So I was still doing some, I did a behind the scenes story about how they blew out Georgia in the SEC title game for the athletic. And I had a paragraph in there about that. They only uh, meet once a week as a, as a full staff. And, you know, kind of explained a little why that was, well, they were playing Oklahoma in the, um, in the peach bowl in the playoff. And Mm -hmm. Shane Beamer, obviously Frank Beamer's son is on the OU staff. And I've known him for a while. And he was asking me about the story. He goes, you know, I thought we were unique because we only meet a couple of times a week as a full Mm -hmm. staff. He goes, I've never heard a staff that only does that. And Ogeron's rationale was, listen, I don't want everybody sitting in here where, you know, they come in at, eight o'clock in the morning and so they stop what they're doing at seven forty five or seven fifty because they're gonna come in. They don't wanna be late, all this stuff. And then they're sitting around waiting and it's like, you know, I trust these guys and these women that they can handle what they're doing. We all don't need to be hearing what everything else is going on. I'm the head coach. I can manage that. But these meetings often, if they're daily meetings, can go forty five minutes to an hour. And supposedly back before he was the head coach, less uh, Les Miles would sometimes be late 30 minutes to the meeting. So people would be sitting around and then you're talking about two hours in the day. And he goes, it's just an energy suck. And it's just not what we want. And so you started to see a lot of things where he was like, you know what? I don't need to do it that way. Cause it's always been done that way. So for instance, they would show, they show up to games much later than anybody else usually does often like a 45 minutes or an hour later. Cause he said, I don't want them sitting around in the locker room. Because we have really good energy coming out of the hotel. I don't want that to be muddled. And so, what struck me really in a big way, and I remember I was doing sideline for five years, so I'm down there, you know, for, for just seeing a lot of teams in the pregame. I have never seen a team, any Alabama, Clemson, you know, Oklahoma, Ohio State, no, no team as loose as that LSU team was an hour before the game. And it was almost identical to the vibe around them at a Wednesday practice where they were really confident, they were really focused, but they were incredibly loose. I didn't see that from anybody else. You just didn't. And and I think that was something that, you know, was very cultivated. And I think it just kept on growing. And you got to have really good leaders. And and that team had really good leaders. And I think you have to have a, you know, it takes time to build that bond up. And they they definitely had that.
3: Yeah, I remember talking to Dave Aranda at his uh, press conference when he got the Baylor head coaching job, uh, and he said the same thing. He said, it was just the perfect season. He said, I don't remember a bad walkthrough. We didn't have bad meetings. Everything clicked. And, and Yeah, like,
2: on that end, I remember thinking, you know, I've done some Ohio State games, but I think Ohio State was probably – some of those teams were every bit as talented as LSU. Now, they didn't have Joe – I mean, they actually did have Joe Burrow, but obviously they didn't – he wasn't the quarterback there. but <laughs> You would look back at some of those great teams, and obviously Urban Meyer is, is a Hall of Fame caliber coach, but there would always be like that game where it's like, it wasn't their A game, it was like their C game, you know? And I would kick their butts, or Purdue would kick their butts, and I don't think people realize how hard it is for college teams not to come out there and have like a clunker performance.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
2: team was like on fire every week, right? Yeah. Like people well, thought Texas A&M was going to get them. They'd be saying right. say I'm like 50 to five, you know, it was just like. Yeah. So I, I just think it, it's rare, pretty rare for a team to be at their best on Saturdays every Saturday.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's probably a byproduct of, like you said, the player leadership and Joe Burrow and all that. So, uh, well, it's a great book and uh, people are going to love getting it. Uh, uh, moving on to college football a little bit, Wisconsin, Nebraska, uh, Cancelled just uh, just not too long ago. Uh, Wisconsin, supposedly has twelve positive tests, and so uh, welcome, including to Graham
1: merch. Hey. Don't forget that yeah. the big dog is is out. But also, said the the big dog Paul Christ is also <laughs> the, positive, the biggest dog. Man, so it's, it's COVID man. right
2: it's COVID. now at Wisconsin. Man.
3: And so, what do you what do you see as far as you know? Because the Big Ten is back joining the party here and they don't have those bi-weeks built in. What, what do you foresee for uh, uh, the Big Ten and this season moving forward, Bruce?
2: It's not – you know, it's going to be pretty turbulent. And we still – here's the part that I, you know, I hesitate to even make any kind of – you know, you can't really make predictions because it's a virus. But also, right. you look around and it's like, especially where – in the footprint they're in, um, you hear about cases are surging, but also hospitalizations are going up. It's not mm-hmm. just cases. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, sometimes when, when we, as you know, college football media, we think of it as like, okay, these are mostly 18 to 22 year olds and they're at, they're in a very low risk category as best we can tell. Um, so, you know, a lot of them are going to be asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. And I think, so we look at it at that prism, but I think also when there is so many cases around the college campuses or in those communities, right. I mean, it's hard for them to <clears throat> get away. They're not in a bubble like the NBA or the NHL or the WNBA were. So, And there's no, as you said, there's no margin for error on the schedule. Like this Nebraska game that was supposed to happen this weekend, that's canceled. There's no yeah. rescheduling it, right? And so, uh, And who's to say, I mean, right now they have 12. I mean, who's to say that they will not have more cases. And so they play they're scheduled to play Purdue on the seventh. I mean, I don't, I, you'd have to be super optimistic to think that it's only going to be at that. And I remember, you know, talking to some people at Baylor when their case, I think they think it came from like a false negative of somebody on a trip. And then that thing spread and it spread really bad through their program and they shut it down for a while and they, you know I guess they only came to the facility just for just to get tested, but you gotta keep your fingers crossed that this is not gonna get worse, and obviously you worry about you know the impact it has i mean look six of those coaches, including Paul Chris, it's like they're at they're at a little more risk depending on what their ages or their 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 uh you know their health background is but I think ultimately it's just like. I don't know if this may not be the exception. There may be more of these out there as we look at what the Big Ten footprint is right now as it's dealing with cases are going up in a lot of places.
1: And then you look at the 21-day minimum protocol. We don't see see these people for quite a while. Right. Grant Mertz is the
2: guy you mentioned who had a terrific first game. At best, he might not be able to. He might be able to get back for the Michigan game, which is the middle of the month of November. But we'll see. I mean, that's even that seems seems uh,
1: questionable. Well, what is it? And what what do you do if you're the Pac-12? You're going. Do we really want to do this now? Big Brother is suffering, and we know this isn't the end of it. At least with the SEC and the Big Twelve, they've got these bye weeks built in, where they where they could maybe combat this. But do you think they're having any second um, second thoughts about this in the Pac twelve? Uh, I'm not. I mean, I think my
2: from my hunch early is I don't think they are because at this point you look at it and go, okay, all right. So some teams may end up playing instead of eight games. Maybe they'll play six. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be nothing about 2020 is normal and absolutely nothing about a college football season is going to be normal. Right. right. So the fact right. that they're going to cancel games, that's just going to be a reality that they're going to deal with. I think the bigger concern is going to be, you know, are we talking about canceling one or two games or is it like, can you get back for, you know, do you miss half a season? Right. Cause as you said, the 21 days is a long time. Now they don't have the 53 uh, person roster scholarship number. And I think this is really, really, mm-hmm. you know, going to be challenging for them. And nobody said it was going to be easy. Um, but look, this is, this is just where we are right now. And you got to keep your fingers crossed. It feels like threading a needle at some point mm-hmm. to try to try to make this, pull this off. And obviously that's, that's going to be pretty rocky.
3: Well, and then we get into the whole discussion, Bruce of like, okay, How many games does a Pac-12 and a Big Ten team need to play to be uh, seriously considered as a CFP playoff team? You know, if they only play six games or five games, say Ohio State just obliterates uh, their opponent in every game but only plays five games or four games, would that be enough in your estimation to, to qualify for a playoff spot?
2: Kirk, I think that's a hard sell. If it's four games, I think that's a, you know, that's a hard sell on that. Um, you know, if it's, if it's six and other teams have nine, um, maybe, but I think even that's a hard, like once you get under, if you have less than two thirds of the schedule as everybody else. And again, this is not, not something I've heard anybody else say. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say it's on like, it's like reported, but I just think, right. you know, just practically, if you've played less than two-thirds of the games everybody else is playing, I don't know if if that's going to be enough to fly once yeah. the FP starts getting around. Because I think if you make that case, then all of a sudden it's like you're basically – I think you're judging it as much on what their draft potential of these guys is as much as anything else. I don't know how you can
1: you can tell are they really one of the best teams.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, you know what, um, Bruce, we've had some some really – cool national guests on lately. We've had Heather Denich and uh Brad McMurphy. And we, we've asked them the same question we're I'm about to ask you. From a national perspective, where where do you what's the national view of the Texas Longhorns and Tom Herman? Uh I think right now it is
2: it's a very much a <laughs> underwhelming like We're kind of used to this now. I mean, I just that's you know, thinking about it like I I did, we did a couple of games my crew did last year of Texas. I remember going and we did the TCU game, and they were already a little bit knocked off kilter going into that. I just remember talking to people, and just didn't feel like things were in a great place. Um, You got the feeling that like maybe everybody wasn't on buying into the vision or, you know, that Tom had at that point, or it just was, it just was not in a good place. And then they ended up losing where pretty much it was like all the players said the right things that it wasn't. We're not blaming the defense or anything like that. And then, you know, TCU, Gary Patterson, brilliant defensive coach. He got Sam Ellinger in that game, right? Sam, Mm -hmm. I think more picks. You know, at that point there was so much pressure on the offense to carry it that eventually that wasn't going to work. And then we had them later in the year, right after Thanksgiving, they played Texas tech and it was a, not a good Texas tech team without Jordan Brooks, their best player. And, um, and with also out, you know, they were playing the backup quarterback and there was a moment in there where like for an hour where it felt like Texas tech was going to beat them too. Yeah. Just obviously Sam, uh, Sam, obviously um, Tom fired most of the staff, and I think once you once you hit that reset button and fire a lot of guys, I think it's really an even more uphill climb to establish a culture, but also to get people to give you more of the benefit of the doubt because that's almost like you know you've now all of a sudden extended whatever benefit of the doubt you probably get mm-hmm. and to see them struggle as they have, um, it's really. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad place to be. I mean, it just – it just um, you know, because I feel like – I mean, just to be blunt, I feel like if they didn't have Sam, I feel like this is a 500 team, and it would have been the 500 team. They're a little better than that because I feel like Sam has covered up some you – know, he's kind yeah. of the, the glue to keep something – keep it from falling apart. But yeah. you look at it on defense, and you see a lot of guys, if you look at their – they're two, four, seven or rivals numbers. They're, they're four and five star guys. And that's not what it looks like. You know, I, I kind of take issue when some of my colleagues in the media will, will say, you know, these are one of the most talented teams and they strictly base it off of what the recruiting ranking was. Cause yeah. I don't know you could ask any NFL scout who comes through Austin, who would be like, this is not one of the top five mm-hmm. or 10 most talented teams. I don't care what the recruiting ranking was. It's mm-hmm. like either the evaluations were off or the development piece is not taken hold whatever it is there's it's probably a combination of those things but they don't look like they're not a top 10 team and they're not close to a top 10 team and Mm -hmm. when you you know whatever's going to happen this year whether they you know obviously it's not a 12 game season so you're kind of factoring in what the numbers are but if they're slightly above 500 um i don't know how you sell people from a recruiting standpoint or from a booster leadership standpoint and say, it's gonna, we're going to feel very confident that 2021 is going to be better because Sam's going to not going to be there. And it's like, yeah, I know that they have good, good recruits coming up, but like, they're going to take another, like they're going to take a hit to probably the biggest thing they've had there in the last five years. And then I don't I just don't know how you get that optimistic that all of a sudden once Sam's gone they're gonna somehow be better get better because I don't see that.
3: Well they basically <clears throat> in a lot of a lot of cases, Bruce, the feeling is they just kind of wasted Sam's career. I mean, you know, he's one and four against Oklahoma, hadn't won a Big Twelve conference and only played for the championship one time when they lost to Oklahoma. So you're exactly right. I mean, and Kirk, this also keep in mind, this
2: isn't like, this isn't a great Oklahoma team. It's like, nice. it's a new quarterback, you know, it's like, this is the big 12 is about as, as, as down as it, I can remember just in terms of even even mm-hmm. when people were saying they don't play defense. Well, they had great quarterbacks in it right now. Yeah. Um, you know, who's the best team in there? It's probably Oklahoma state because they're, they seem to be good on defense and, but their quarterback has been hurt, and it's just like you don't look at it and go, you know, K-State is a tough out, but they they got beat by a Sunbelt team, and they, you know, they're playing a backup quarterback. And um, right. it just – you just kind of look at it and go, this this conference is there for the taking. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't kind of add up.
3: And you're right, and this is year four for uh... – for Tom. And that's why a lot of people just lost faith. And it's like, well, if not now with the Sam, with the conference, like it is when, and uh, so a lot of people are just kind of, you know, losing hope, you know, um, other, otherwise Aggie fans in the state are just, uh, just hyperventilating over uh, their team. Uh, they've got Arkansas coming in. So that's where I'll be. Uh, do you think the Aggies are for real? Uh, do you see them being maybe the second best team in the SEC, Bruce?
2: No, um, I I think they're I think they're better than they've been. You know, they well, have a really experienced quarterback in Kellen Mond. They have some good young players around him. I still think Georgia's better than them. I mean, remember, uh, right. yeah, they beat Florida, but they also, you know, when they went up against the Gold Center, they got blown out of the building, right? So, right. Um, you know, like I look at them. And I think they're better. I'm still not convinced that this is going to go much better than it did under someone, you know, record mm-hmm. wise, mm-hmm. you know, like someone had the one top five finish when, when Johnny won the Heisman. And then after that, it felt like it was a lot of, a lot of underwhelming efforts and they were like, they were like eight and five ish a lot.
3: Yep. Well, um, a lot. And I,
2: I don't know that I see Texas A&M, you know, I think they're better than they've been. Um, but again, this is like all right. You got a really experienced quarterback. Mm -hmm. Like this is a chance to be a top ten team. I'm still a little, you know, this is a, yeah. I mean, they they barely beat Vandy at the beginning of the year, right? So 2012, I was there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my uh, condolences. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. like I, I, you know, I think Jimbo's a good coach. He's obviously won a national title, but but he. You know, like, I don't know. Uh, Um, I'm still on the wait and see. I think this will be a telling year. And maybe, look, maybe they'll just roll the rest of the SEC and have that bad, you know, blowout loss to Alabama. And then it's, then they're
1: in. One
3: one reason I think they've got a chance to be different, Bruce, is that they have really strong in O line and D line, which is such a blueprint for SEC teams. And, uh, that's why they don't make Kellen Mond win the games for them like they kind of have in the past. That's why I think they at least have a chance. Now, maybe Arkansas goes in and knocks them off Saturday. I don't know. But uh, – And Spiller's
2: and a good running back. I mean, he's he is a good running
3: yeah, back. Spiller. Spiller is really yeah, Spiller. Isaiah really good. And Matt Smith is really good. So, they, they've got some pieces. Hey, you're on the set there with Urban Meyer. We always ask our national guests, is Urban Meyer going to coach again? Do you have any thoughts, uh, any insight on him?
2: I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm not trying to be dicey on it. Like I know he really cares about our show. Cause I can see how into it is. I mean, he cares about the ratings. He cares about the, you know, like every aspect of it. So I know yeah. he's, he's into TV at the same right. time, you know, he's still a football coach and he's whatever, 56. So it's not like he's over the hill. Um, yeah. like it wouldn't, like I would not be surprised if he coached again. I just wouldn't just cause, you know, yeah, he's really good at it, and he knows he's really good at it. And I think that competition—like I can tell how competitive he is—just in on the TV side of what really? matters from about our show. How can you tell? Oh, because he he wants our show to be the best pregame show that that is out there, and obviously ESPN has a has a has a uh, has a juggernaut show in college game day. So he um, doesn't
3: yell at you and Reggie Bush and people, does he? Like your players. <laughs>
2: no, he's not the killer on the set. But he is like I, I, you know, I'm in the meetings with him on Fridays and I'm we're on the calls on Monday. Like he really cares about the show. Like afterwards, like even you know, it's a two hour show, it's a grind, and then you come yeah. back and it's also, you know, we're in there at five AM. Um, right. you know, so everybody starts, you know, pretty much as wake up call at four AM. So it's I'm not saying it's like not like we're holding jackhammers or not like that, but it's <laughs> you know, it is a grind of a show. And then afterwards, I mean, he's very much in getting feedback from people. He trusts about what they thought went well, what, you know, what could have been better and those kinds of things. So he is, this isn't a case where, um, it's a former coach who's just getting by on what they knew or just personality or their name. Like he's really into it. So, um, you know, that part is, is different. And I could see him, I could see him wanting to do it for a long time. It's just, you know, those coaches, man. You know, that they bug, they, man. That bug.
1: Yeah, look at Mac. Yeah, look it's at
2: more. It. They just don't. They they can't get it out of their system. Yeah, look at so Mac it's Brown. Bigger than COVID,
1: I'm coaching. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it is. And speaking of coaches, your old friend Mike Leach is having some problems at the Mississippi State. Uh, yeah. Does he just have to get his own personnel in there, or? I don't know. Um, this is going to be different
2: for him. You know, it's like, you know, he's in more of a spotlight because he's in the SEC. You know, he's obviously had friction mm-hmm. with their with his best player, Kylan Hill. That has not gone well. Um, he's yeah. had some transfers there. Mike doesn't deal well with conflict. No, um, he doesn't. You know, so I don't know. Like, the one thing I would say is, the wazoo fan base is a pretty savvy fan base because they experienced everything with leech i mean they were awful before he got there he made them nationally relevant he made Mm -hmm. them interesting but at the same time there's a lot of other stuff that comes with mike that is not stuff that will make fans feel great and it's some of the way he handles losses it's there's a bunch of stuff that involves with that and so you know, they had a great win over, over LSU in the opener. And Mike was the toast of college football for a weekend. And then, Mm -hmm. um, then they get blown out by Kentucky and then it's been all downhill from there. And he's made some comments about, you know, purging the roster and malcontents and things just like, I think one of the things that, that is hard for even, you know, people who work with Mike and are close to Mike is that a lot of times, and this is something you'll hear from assistants who used to be on his staff is just like, hey, when it's going great, he loves to be the eccentric, colorful figure. And then when they lose, it's even if he doesn't message it that, that, you know, even if it's not all the way this way, it's just like yeah. the vibe comes out that it's the player's fault. And yeah. Right. It doesn't sit well and you can't, you know, right. I mean, it's just, um, yes, he has more access to talent at, in Starkville, Mississippi, than he did in Pullman, Washington. You know what? There was also no Alabama in the in the Pac-12 in the north. There's also like everybody doesn't have like like whenever he would play in the Apple Cup and my crew did a couple of these games, they would play uh, Washington and Jimmy Lake, the defense coordinator there, and now the head coach and Chris Peterson would kick the crap out of Leach's teams, and they yeah. couldn't block their guys. And while well, all of a sudden now feels like a lot of SEC teams have a, have their own Vita Vea. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like there's a little bit of a recipe to, you know, if you have enough talent that you can handle that air raid system because Mike's really stubborn on it. And, um, so I don't know how the, the rest of this is going to go. Cause it's, it's definitely, he's already had some, some moments off the field that I think have put him in some a little bit of uh, hot water with his bosses. And yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see how this is going to go.
3: That's his style. That's Mike Leach. So, well, last question I have is that, you know, everybody's looking at Alabama, Clemson, probably Ohio State is the best three teams in the nation. Uh, one, do you agree with that? And who would you put in as the fourth when we're talking around Christmas time? Yeah, I do agree with it.
2: Um, you know, like, I want to see more from Michigan and their offense. It's only been one game. They blew out Minnesota on the road the other day. I know mm-hmm. Joe Milton is. People think inside that program think he can be special. You know, obviously, the mm-hmm. operative words are can be as opposed to is because he yeah. still got to really do it and do it consistently. Right. But they definitely have talent. I mean, so Michigan's one that I would keep an eye on. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people are going to default to Georgia because they're really good on defense. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They got to get be- much better on offense. I, I don't know if. You know, just, yeah, Oklahoma State may be the best tw- team in the Big 12. I don't see them being able to compete with those teams anywhere near if they got no playoff game. We'll find out if Notre Dame is better than Notre Dame Yeah, has been when they play Clemson. But, uh, you know, right now, I mean, Michigan's the team I'm most curious about.
3: I'm, I'm pulling for Cincinnati. I'd love to see Luke Fickle's. Team in there. I feel like John river. Bianco has got has worn you down
2: about about the Bearcats, maybe, and planted <laughs> the seeds thirty years thirty years ready to sprout.
3: <laughs> I, I'm riding shotgun on Cincinnati. I'd love to see him get there. They pummeled SMU at over 300 yards rushing. So if, yeah, if they, it's going to be 20 year years. This is the year to get a 2-5.
2: Yeah, know. and if, if look, if they were in the Big 10 West, I think they might be the Big ten, best team in the Big 10 West. But yeah. I don't know if they're going to be able to prove it more than a New Year's Six
1: Bowl, but right. I'm with you. I think right. they're a top-10 team.
3: Yeah, I do too.
1: Well, we I encourage you to go out and get the book. Yeah. Uh, Flip the Script, Lessons Learned on the Road to a Championship. Bruce Feldman, it's always a pleasure talking to you, man. And I just love the conversation of today. And let's do it again sometime this season, if there's a season. My pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care, Bruce. Good luck right. Take with the bear. Really. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. On second thought.
2: True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content.
1: The Already Gone
2: podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher.
1: Doug, great conversation with Bruce Feldman, and man, uh, I, I hate, you know... It, it kind of reminded me, because he, he, uh, '05 Texas at '05 had had some real characters on that team, and and uh, we got to we got to cover them, but we didn't get the kind of access that he was able to get with LSU and Coach O. Let's bring ahead to the present: Longhorns at Oklahoma State, three o'clock on Saturday, and Tom Herman, twenty-eight and seventeen in year four. And I know 2020 is a different beast, but the Natives, Duck, are growing restless. Oh, I think they passed restless probably long last year ago. sometime
3: when they <laughs> lost five games. And as you and I both know, you know, I think Tom and Texas was kind of pointing to this year, year four. And, you know, Sammy was, you know, going to be a four-year starter. They had a lot of elements. He had a lot of three – straight top 10 recruiting classes in the fold. So, and I think the pandemic and the coaching instability played a role into that, but I mean, he fired seven coaches and nobody made him fire seven. So he admitted that staff wasn't getting it done. So, uh, so yeah, it, it worked out that it was, you know, chemistry, cohesiveness, you know, didn't work out that well, but it's, it's, you know, a lot of the fan base is checked out. And so this is just the latest in a long line of big games that, okay, Tom, what do you got? And it's like, it's almost like the last game to have any degree of a success this year. Yeah.
1: And, and you look at um, the opponent, uh, Mike Gundy, say what you will about the mullet duck, 16 seasons in Stillwater and longevity is not something that you all that you always see uh, in a Power Five program that hasn't re- that hasn't really scratched the surface of winning a, anything like a national championship, even though they entered this game uh, sixth in the country. To that end, I I asked Tom Herman about uh, the longevity of Mike Gundy, and here's what he had to say on Monday. Hey Tom. Um, the longevity of Mike Gundy in Stillwater. How overlooked and underappreciated
0: are, are guys like him were able to stay in one place and win consistently? Uh, n- not by not by us, not by coaches. Uh, I think you know what, what coach Gundy has been able to do, which is um, you know, come into a program, his alma mater, his dream job, if you will and be given the time necessary to build it his way uh, and then, you know, have that way, you know, after a few years continue to produce uh, the dividends that it has produced. I think, uh, you know, time that you can have a, a head coach uh, in place, you, you look no further than TCU as well. And, um, you know, Coach Gundy right now is – has got a very experienced team that that his fingerprints are, are all over because all of these guys have been developed for three, four, five years uh, in in his system, and he's got a great system. He's able to survive uh, coaching turnover, uh, seemingly you know every few years, and um, you know that's done because the same programs and, and philosophies are, are in place year after year after year and uh he, he does a great job with it. So Doug, um Tom's in year in year four
1: and Gundy is in year sixteen. You think Tom Herman can somehow pull it all together and and create one of those long term Nick Saban type uh tenures at Texas or is he going to fall short, just like the last two coaches, just like uh, Charlie Strong did, uh, replacing Matt?
3: Well, uh, you know, that's the danger of saying never. You know, it's very dangerous to say that in sports. So, you know, anything is possible, especially in the year that is 2020.
1: What if he loses this weekend?
3: More... Well, I think, uh, you know, if he could rally to win this weekend and and become – you know, eight and two or seven and three and show progress, show they're still on the trajectory where it gives the fan base and the administration hope that, okay, that he is the guy. But, uh, you know, if they lose this weekend and, and that's their third loss and I think most of us would think they'd probably lose another one. Six and four would not be pretty, you know. And you don't have the luxury of extra non-conference games to maybe pad your record in a 12-game season. So, you know, by playing only one non-conference game against an overmatched UTEP, you got to show yourself in the conference. And it's just like Bruce Feldman said, Big 12's down. There's it no is. question this.
1: This was Texas the year, down. Duck. This it's, was it's, the it's, year the Horns were supposed to win the Big 12 this year. And when they fumbled against TCU – they mucked it yeah. up. They right. did. This was it was their form rolled out on a silver platter.
3: But and and even before that said, it, it started to show itself in Lubbock when you you got to go to overtime to beat a Texas Tech team. And Texas Tech uh, upset West Virginia in Lubbock last week. Before that, that, their only win was against Houston Baptist, and they barely survived.
1: Barely two point Houston version. Baptist.
3: So oh, I think when, you know, they had to rally from 15 down with 313 left and Lubbock was kind of the, uh, sounded an ominous note on this season. And then, like you said, TCU, they couldn't close the deal. And then Oklahoma, they had just a horrendous third quarter before, you know, getting back into the game on the strength of Sam. So it's just people are looking for some consistency you know, it's one thing to talk about continuity of staff, stability of staff. But when Tom has already admitted his first staff wasn't up to the task, and now he's sitting here at three and two, they've got to show a, a win over a top ten
1: team. And uh, this is their latest chance to do it. Well, here we are on Thursday, big guy. Uh, oh, gosh. I you, I know you hate doing it, but the people yeah, want to know. know what we think. They want to know what we think. Who wins this game and why? Now, you know,
3: I've tried to talk myself into taking Texas because, you know, they have their moments. I just don't see a 60-minute consistent game out of Texas because we haven't seen it, you know, since the Alamo Bowl. And, And to me, clearly, Oklahoma State's the better team. They're the more confident team. They have more momentum. They're at home. You know, it, it is interesting that the line is so small mm-hmm. with the three-point That surprised line. me, Doug. That surprised me. Favoring the Cowboys. So, unless I change my mind in the next day or so, I'm, I'm going with the Cowboys and just thinking they're the superior team playing at home with more momentum.
1: Give me a score, big, big guy. guy. Good running. What's the score?
3: I think it's, uh, you know, they've got a very good defense in Stillwater. Texas look better against the average Baylor team. Missing two line starters. So, you know, I think it's, it looks like a, you know, kind of a 35 31 kind of game
1: for Oklahoma State. What do you got? I I think uh, I usually go with, with the more experienced quarterback, but boy, it's just so much on Sam to carry this thing. And, and um, still, still pass rush is still not where they need it to be. And, this is, this is the kind of game where you, would, you were a good edge rusher would, would be great, but we don't know what Joseph Osai's availability is going to be uh, with, that, um, with that shoulder injury. So I, I just think, the, I think that uh, Oklahoma State's more experienced. Uh, you had a great, great column on hook'em.com about all the juniors and seniors, and they're too deep. Uh, they're at home. Now, the Oklahoma State history says soon as you expect them to, to, to be that team, they give one away. Mm-hmm. But I don't think yes. this is that one. I don't think this is that one. I think they hold serve. I think they beat Texas 34-27. Uh, I think Texas hangs around for a while uh, but just isn't able to get over the hump.
3: Well, this is Gundy's best chance. You know, I mean, he had a great team in 2011 with Brandon Whedon, and remember they went to Iowa State on a Friday and lost uh, in overtime. Uh, otherwise, that could have been in the BCS national championship game, and this may be his second best chance because Oklahoma down. They haven't played them yet in the Bedlam series, and they got Texas at home, and so. Uh, and they've already already. Yeah, 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 maybe second best, Mm -hmm. you know, in the league. So, uh, yeah, it's looking like a cowboy party. And we'll see if uh, Texas has anything left in its tank to to get over that hump.
1: Well, before we get out of here, I know you're a big MLB fan, and we'd be remiss if we didn't. Throw a shout out to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Congratulations to the Dodgers. Uh, Our buddy Craig Way goes way back with them. Uh, he was celebrating online the day. Watched game six last night. Parts of it. I was switching back and forth. Um, Not a big analytics guy, Doug. (laughs) And young Snell had it going. And the nerds just couldn't help themselves. Kevin Cash pulls him out and – you don't have to be a lip, lip, lip reader to see the disgust mm-hmm. on that kid's face. What happened? What happened to, to the gut? What happened to, you know what, my guy has it going for the second straight game, and this time I'm going to leave him in there. I know this is how they got there, Doug. But sometimes you got to be a baseball guy and not be a numbers guy. What did you think of that move?
3: Oh, I agree with you 100%. It was paralysis by analysis and I love that. You're exactly right. They need to throw analytics out the window on occasion. And anybody, even if you don't follow baseball, you know, you're watching that game and Blake Snell is rolling, a rolling. Cy, Young, Cy Young award winner and you know maybe he hadn't been all that this year and hadn't gone that long, but when you when you're only reasoning is that well I didn't want him to go through the Dodger lineup a third time. We go, why? <laughs> you know, dominant pitchers can be dominant, okay, no matter who, how. Guess
1: pitchers. who else didn't want him going through the Dodger lineup yeah. a third Mookie time? Betts. The Dodgers. <laughs> Did you see Mookie, Mookie Betts, his Betts' eyes light up when he walked off the field? <laughs> Mookie's like, Let finally. It get- Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you.
3: Yeah. And maybe he has stayed in and they'd have lost one-nothing, you know. I, I doubt it just because. It just seemed all the air went out of the Tampa Bay rays dugout and it's like, oh it was just that sinking feeling and it lifted the Dodgers. And adrenaline is a big thing in sports, as you and I both know. It is. And it just kinda of seemed
1: to give that lift to the Dodgers. i yeah, it was I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a romanticist when it comes to sports. I'm an old romantic. I want a game seven. I just did. I just Dude, did. You always want a game seven. And that that was an entertaining series. And I just I just mm-hmm. think uh, I'm I'm on Twitter watching, you know, while I'm on watching the game, and and Greg Swindell and um on social media, Dennis Cook, Randy Boone, the former Longhorns, you know, were just ripping the analytics to shreds. They were crushing it those are old school guys that kind of understand that sometimes it's bigger than the numbers. It's about what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. the pe- people, um, people disagreed with me. There is a lot of people that subscribe to the analytics model and that's fine, but somewhere in there has to be a balance. And I didn't see that from the Rays.
3: And you always hate it when they excuse, well, oh, we've done it this way all year long. You know, it's like,
1: you haven't been in the world yeah. series all year long though. Game six uh, and Blake, he was just rolling, and it it left me a little bullpen, flat too. Yeah, and that bullpen was gassed. We knew yeah. they were gassed, and um, they looked gassed, and it just yeah, yeah. it, it kind of it it was kind of a bad bad ending to what could have been one of the all time great series.
3: Yeah, and and you're right, and you know credit to the Tampa Bay Rays for getting there. Credit to John Curtis for. For being on that staff, another ex Longhorn, but to it me, you well, had to feel happy for Clayton Kershaw and Dave Roberts. You know, they've taken a lot of heat, you know, over getting close. You know, and it's the franchise, storied franchise, uh, that hadn't won since '88. So, yeah, I felt happy for
1: Dave Roberts and Clayton Kershaw. I did too. And uh, before before I um, ask you one last question, um, uh, the one thing that that I said to a tweeter who disagreed with me is imagine if analytics existed in 1988, Kirk Gibson never faces Dennis Eckersley to, mm-hmm. to hit that, that walk-off home run because he could barely yeah. walk. Tommy Lasorda said, I'm reaching into my sizable gut and I'm, yeah. I'm going to bring out my stud even though he's like 50% and maybe he can mm-hmm. find it from somewhere. And guess what? He did. Those yeah. are moments, Duck. Those are moments. And I think Blake Snell missed out on his moment in game six. I
3: like Bucky Dent Dent, hitting a home run over the green monster. Mike
1: Torres never got over it. Mike Torres has never been the same. Um, Yeah. One NFL question, because we have NFL people listening. Mike McCarthy, does he even make it through the season? Jerry Jones has been very complimentary. Of Mike McCarthy, but I see a coach who doesn't, who has lost that locker room, or worse yet, Doug, never had it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and boy, you better have respect for your coach, and yeah, Jerry says the right things, and he wanted a guy like McCarthy who was had been through the wars and, and had survived there, but uh, boy, it just seems like it's, it almost looked like it's circling the drain, you know? It's mm-hmm. just like the team doesn't seem to believe they're talking offensive line, maybe the worst in NFL history. I mean, I, they can't I, how about them? How me.
1: about none of those it's guys coming to the aid of Andy Dalton after he got, after he nearly got beheaded terrible. by John Bostic? That's terrible. I mean, governor, yeah, McGovern, Connor Williams, Tyler us, B- Terrence Steele, Cameron Irving. Where were you? Where were you when your quarterback, uh, dude, tried to end his career? basically. Uh, that was his first concussion. They needed
3: They needed a George Teague knocking T.O. off the star. That's know? what they needed. They, they, did, they didn't have that, and that showed you where their heart is. And it's like they were just a beaten team. You know, they had nothing left. And that's the reason why I, I don't think McCarthy's out of the woods. I think, you know, because they've got a lot of games to play. You know, they're, they're, they're not even all the way through the halfway point of the season. And Jerry, as much as he likes being in the public eye and the spotlight and doesn't really care what you're saying about the Cowboys, as long as you're saying something, you know, he doesn't want them to be the laughing stock of the league. So I think it's within the realm of possibility that uh, McCarthy's, you know, isn't the head coach of the Cowboys in 2021. That'd
1: be crazy. That would be crazy. Well, man, what a great podcast today, man. We got to thank Bruce Feldman for joining us. Thank you guys for listening to episode 198 of On Second Thought. We'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. For the Doug Kirk Bowls. I'm Cedric Golden. We'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to On Second Thought, powered by Hook'em.com.
1: Join Ced and Kirk every Thursday at lunch for a new episode archived episodes are available on iTunes and Google Android Play.